Confidential Podcast. It's Black History Month, and joining me today, we have regular co-host Melody Akles. Welcome, Melody. Hey, hey. Returning, uh, we're going to be like co-host at large, Jamie Giddens maybe oh yeah we'll talk about that we'll talk about that later (laughs) well and also returning to podcasts that i produce is longtime friend of daytime confidential podcast jay bernard jones welcome how are you today hey everybody i'm fine enjoying this great atlanta weather and glad to be back it is a sad day when atlanta is having better weather weather than phoenix so i'm jealous (laughs) Not, not not to atlantans is not well, right, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, also joining us, first time on the podcast, um, he's written some great content at Geek Confidential. He wrote our year-end comics list. He also has written a top 25 ranking for the Image Comics, which is celebrating its 25th anniversary this month. Mo Walker, welcome. Hi, how are you guys? I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to this discussion because obviously it's Black History Month, and Black geekdom is a topic that I see on Twitter. I follow um, people. I listen to podcasts. And so I'm like, I want to have a discussion about black geekdom on Geek Confidential. So I figured I would just kick it off because there are lots of different types of geeks. There's gamer geeks, comic geeks, horror nerds, electronic and computer geeks. Jamie's always giving me a hard time about my te- like wanting the latest technology while he's on dial-up modems. There's sana- sci-fi and fantasy geeks. I have, that was um, 10 years ago. I'm not on a dial-up modem. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, for the re- but for the record, you still have asked me how to hook up your uh, DVD player. So yes, there's... there's, the, there's, uh, there's, there's no just, shame in that. No, I'm not saying there's any shame. I'm just saying there's different interests for different people. I didn't go to internet. I did not either. So I want to kick this topic off with what does geek mean to you? Mel, as our resident lady geek, ladies first, what does it mean to you? For me, being a geek means being yourself, being true to who you are and, you know, just accepting the things that you like and not caring if it's not popular or people are going to judge you for it. You like it because you like it, you know, and I feel like there's a whole, oh, I know, I know there's a whole group of people out there that feel the same way as I do and we can all connect on the same thing, whether it's if we all like Captain America or if we all like the same video game or the same TV show, you know, we're all geek in the same way. And I don't think I've never thought that geek was a dirty word. You know what I mean? So that's just kind of really the way that I feel about it is that you are being yourself and you're expressing what you like and you can do it with a group of people. And for me, that's fantastic. Mo, you and I have talked about comics um, and television. What does being a geek mean for you? Like Melody said, just being yourself, just letting your geek flag fly. Um, just not worrying about what other people think about your interests, you're going to find a community out there. And I think it's much easier these days than 25, 30 years ago when, for me, it was if I had wanted to find other comic book enthusiasts, I had to go to my local comic book shop. But now I can find people online and people at my local comic shop. Okay. Jamie, um, you I don't know what you consider yourself, but sometimes you've given me a hard time about geek stuff. So I would say you might have geek tendencies that you may not always want to fess up to. What does geek mean for you? Uh, here's the deal. So 
Growing up, I was probably that person. Not probably. I was. I ran with the cheerleaders. I was the bitchy gay boy who wrote the gossip column. So I didn't really fit into what was called geekdom back then so i so that probably well no it definitely did spill into our relationship when i learned of your love of all things battlestar galactica and science fiction you know i did sort of think oh luke's probably wore a pocket protector and, <laughs> and things of that nature growing and, up. and mel and you have given me more than a little hard time over the years with the pew 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 but but i mean look geeks rule the world I mean, at this point, you know, grow. I mean, in, in, if you look at the industrial age, it was the robber barons, it was the the Carnegies and the people, the steel, you know, steel and oil and newspapers. But now, I mean, the biggest billionaires are the people who, other than Warren Buffett, everybody else is a tech billionaire. I mean, you know, uh, Microsoft and. Zuckerberg and so geeks are definitely having a moment and um, so yeah I mean it the definition has totally changed um, geeks are a lot hotter than they used to be like that guy who runs Snapchat you know they didn't look like that when I was growing up but um, you know I'm like that geek could get it um, but you know I mean it, we're we're at this stage in, in entertainment especially where I mean, comic book movies are the only movies that are a sure box office draw these days. You know, if you love rom-coms like I do, you're, you're kind of SOL. You have to watch that on Netflix now. But so, yeah, I mean, geekdom has definitely changed. But I will say there's definitely a parallel in a lot of the things that I like. You know, soap opera is not considered a mainstream uh, pop culture love anymore so you know there's a an element of being a soap opera geek um uh yeah so i mean i and and to your point of my, where my geek flag organically flies it's usually at a at a cross purpose with soap opera and romantic drama like so Riverdale. I like, like i like buffy because to me, I was watching a teen soap opera. I didn't really care so much about the geek aspects of it, but that's a place where we'll cross. And Riverdale, I grew up reading Archie comics, but I never thought of that as true geekdom because, you know, when you think about it, you always think of, like, the action hero comic books being the what the geeks read or whatever. So to me, again, reading Archie comics was always reading a high school romantic comedy in comic book form for me. And so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some, some moments where geekdom meets, you know, I guess. (laughs) Jay Bernard, I know that you like me are a big fan of the Battlestar Galactica series. Um, but geekdom can range from everything from cosplay to someone in my case, sort of trying to launch a podcast. What does uh, being a geek mean to you? Well, I, I don't have much to add to what everybody else said because they more or less covered it um, from, from how I, from how I per- perceive it. I would say that geekdom is really being more of an uncredentialed and in some cases credentialed expert in your field. <laughs> because you meet geeks, you talk to geeks, you argue with geeks, God knows you argue with geeks, about all sorts of things um, in terms of the things that we love, and a lot of it is defined by passion. 
we are very passionate about the things that we like, um, whether it's whether it's uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica or, in my case, I'm more of a Star Trek guy than I am a Star Wars guy. I'm right there um, with you, Jay Bernard. Right there you know, with you. you. Right. You know, um, we're passionate in, in our arguments between which is the better of the two to get into the scientific arguments, the pseudoscience of it, into our superhero love. But it's not just but it's not just um, you know, it's not just genre stuff. You know, there's sports geeks, as Jamie said. There's soap opera geeks. All of them have that one singular thing that there's passion attached to it. And I think that if anything, I would probably be more of a TV geek in general, more along the lines of someone who, let me show you just how deeply my geekdom went when it came to TV. When I was in fifth or sixth grade, I would read magazines like Panorama and TV Guide and the history of TV. And then in my spare time, I would, I would challenge myself to write down every single television show that had been produced since the 1940s up until 1970, whatever that was. And I would come up to like a thousand TV shows before I would run out and have to wait for the new TV series, new TV season to begin. I was just that deep into it. So your geekdom... I know that sounds weird, but that's me. So the the kingdom can run very, very deep on all number of levels. And and like everybody else here, I am firmly proud of whatever my geekdom is at the moment, as it seems to be. Mo, the topic of one's heroes fascinates me because I was raised in a very sheltered religious environment. And so for me, I came late to geekdom, much like Jesus I did. Jesus was your hero. Well, yeah. Jesus it, was your geekdom. There, there were, there, I definitely had favorite Bible characters, which, uh, I, like daytime, I was late me to too, geekdom. Yeah, so I was never the person who was able to really be raised with growing up a diehard Spider-Man fan or a diehard Superman fan. And so whether it's fictional or a real life hero, because when I've thought about like who my heroes were as a child, I can't really think of any. But when you and I talked recently, you talked about how you had a mentor who inspired you um, and whether or not that person had any influence on geek. Who are your heroes in geekdom? Well, I guess probably my biggest hero who had an influence on how I perceived geekdom is was my mother. I mean, she wasn't a geek by any stretch of the imagination, but she always supported my interest in, in superheroes and, and cartoons and so forth. She didn't understand why I like to go spend, you know, a dollar, a dollar seventy-five, whatever. She'd give me the money. She would make sure I got to the comic shop. Um, she was very careful when she cleaned up my room to make sure she didn't mess my comic books up. Um, she made sure I got like the superhero underoos and so forth. And you know, and she didn't and, and I had when I was younger I used to take my action figures to church with me on Sundays so I'd have my Batman and Robin and Joker action figures in, in the pockets of my my coat and so I would pull them out and start playing with them in Sunday school and in church and I would get at, get in trouble but my mom was like well it's okay son it's just a time and place for that that sort of thing um, but if you want to if in terms of just figures within, 
geek culture themselves, probably one of my biggest quote-unquote heroes would be a, an individual by the name of Dwayne McDuffie. Um, Dwayne McDuffie, he died, he passed away in, two, in 2011. He was yes. the co-creator of Static. As I'm sure some of you all may have heard this, of Static Shock, the animated uh, cartoon series that ran on the WB about yep. 15, 15 years ago. He co-created Static Shock. He about the same time as Batman Beyond, I believe, right? Yes, he actually worked on on uh, some of those cartoons, those Warner Brothers cartoons back from back in the 1990s, uh, such as Batman the Animated Series, Justice League Unlimited, that Cartoon Network aired in the early 2000s and, and so forth. He also created a company called Milestone Media, which uh, created – Static was one of their characters. Um, Icon and Rocket were another one of their characters. Another character was called Hardware. It was a – predominantly African-American comic book company. It was an imprint of DC Comics. Jay Bernard, I heard you agreeing with Moe's. Who were your heroes, fictional or real life? Um, First of all, let me um, co-sign with Moe about uh, Mr. McDuffie. Mr. McDuffie is a legend who is even now fondly remembered by by so many. Um, and, and from a slightly different perspective, um, uh, I have to also co-sign about what my parents, um, in terms of, you know, what, what Mo said about, you know, his mother um, uh, being so supportive of him. Uh, in my household, the difference was, was that I didn't have any restrictions on what I could read or watch. Um, I, I, I started with encyclopedias when I was a wee tot, um, I started reading um, uh, uh, comics, um, I think probably around about five or six years old, and um, I could literally whatever I wanted um, and read it because it was all treated in my household as, as, as different forms of literature or learning, or at, at least it kept me from, you know, doing stuff I shouldn't have been doing as a kid. So, you know, I could could indulge, I could indulge, you know, all of my, um, my comic passions. And so I have to credit uh, my, uh, and geek passions. I have to credit my parents um, for for both of those, uh, for both of those, uh, for both of them allowing me the freedom to just explore. Um, And, and at one point I was exploring to the point where I got about, I have think a collection of about 3,800 comics. Oh, wow. Something like that by the time I was 11. Um, and I was mainly a DC, a DC kid. When, when the question was, you know, who are your heroes, I think, real or fictional? Uh, in the fictional realm, it would have been uh, Superman was my guy. Okay. And um, uh, mainly because, not so much because of the powers <laughs> or all the amazing feats, but there was a certain humanity about Superman that, I aspirational humanity and that I loved because he was sort of, he was the original super outsider. And, um, there was an, the innate decency of the character really appealed to me. So I gravitated towards Superman as sort of my first, my first hero. Um, and as far as one more thing, as far as this being black history month, I have to say that the, the, the black character, that I gravitated to the most was Black Lightning mm. um, when he was introduced. 
and we'll get to Black Lightning soon. But Black Knight Lightning, when he first made his debut, was like, ah, that breath of fresh air that I had been waiting for, particularly given that I wasn't a Marvel guy per se and wasn't aware of what was really sort of going on in that particular universe. So those are my three touchstones. Jamie, who inspired you? Who are your heroes? Well, in terms of trying to keep with the theme of geekdom, I would say Madam C.J. Walker, who Mm. is the first, uh, one of the first black millionaires. She might have been the first. I believe she she... is the first self-made black millionaire. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, she started her own cosmetics company because uh, she dealt with, as a lot of black women um, do, hair loss um, because of harsh products in mm-hmm. in the hair care industry and in the 1900s at a time when you know black people couldn't even eat in the same restaurants as white people she built a an empire she built a her own uh madam cj walker manufacturing company to sell her hair care products and i've just always been fascinated by that story i i love the cosmetics industry and the glitz and the glamour of it and the fact that you know there was a black female back in those days who managed to do this um is i just think incredible and you know here lately there's been talk of there finally being a a uh, some sort of adaptation. Um, I believe Queen Latifah was attached um, to yes, her was. story. So hopefully we'll get to see her story on the big screen because Les Luke knows and anyone who's listened to any of our podcasts, I tend to get annoyed by the the fact that there are so many slave-themed or Jim Crow-themed <laughs> movies uh, about black people because I do know that there are stories of great success and triumph and while I definitely believe we need to know the ugliness of our history I also want to celebrate the triumphs more and and that's something you know in our culture the paths to success tend to be that are promoted we're all on here as examples we, you know the black people who are on this podcast right now or are writers and filmmakers and uh, journalists and who come from a very varied uh, career background. But if you think about what you're told, you know, at home or in your communities, it's play ball or, you know, become a rapper or things like that. And not everyone, you know, I'm generalizing, but that's just what gets the most you know, are you playing ball? Are you going to play ball when you go to school? That's all I ever heard growing up. And so it's it's really nice to see these stories coming about, you know, about black people who were math and science geeks who managed to, to grow fortunes. Because, you know, I have these conversations with people in Hollywood and they say things like, you know, you know, there was a TV show... Um, in development a while ago that was going to have a, a black tech billionaire um, involved in crime fighting. And, you know, one of my well-meaning white friends was like, you know, I mean, I'm all for diversity, but that's not really realistic. And I was like, what do you mean? Well, I mean, it would be someone like a Zuckerberg, right? 
And I could tell she had no grasp or understanding that there were black people who have made fortunes outside of, you know, being Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan or, you know, things of that nature. And so, yeah, I, I just really am I'm happy to see stories like uh, Hidden Figures and, and hopefully Madam C.J. Walker's story come into light because, you know, there are black geeks who managed to become successful. So part of our um, long-term business relationship, you and I have talked about her in the past. And so for my day job, I'm actually helping to present a Black History Month presentation at work. And, And I remembered you telling me about her. So I looked her up. And in addition to being a great inventor and person who was able to use their mind to create wonderful products, she also ended up being a very big philanthropist to try and help bring i mean other people have opportunities so it's not just that she was great and she hoarded it she actually used it as an opportunity to help other people as well mel definitely um oh well wait now as far as my fictional heroes so um luke as you know we always joke about this my introduction to the dc comics world was the Super Friends cartoon. Uh, I didn't read the comic books growing up, but I did watch all of the different variations of the DC Comics um, cartoons from the late 70s and well into the mid 80s. My favorite being Challenge of the Super Friends, which you know had the entire Justice League of America facing off each week against the Legion of Doom. Now, I will say this, my favorite characters tended to be the Legion of Doom characters, which used to really bother my grandmother that no matter what cartoon I was watching, I didn't want to be Superman. I wanted to be Lex Luthor. Or if I was playing Transformers, I wanted to be Starscream. I didn't want to be Megatron. I wanted to be the one scheming to usurp Megatron. So she was like, why do you always want to be the scheming evil character? (laughs) So that was always unique. But, um... I'll say 80s cartoons were probably my my introduction to, you know, real geekdom. And, and like uh, Mo was talking, I had the underwear, too. You know, luckily, unfortunately, the villains never got their own underwear. So, <laughs> the Green you know, Goblin? Or if they did, I never saw them, you know. So I had to, you know, I wore Superman, but I was really wishing there were, I could find some Lex Luthor. Because I was like, how do you take over the world? <laughs> Mel, um, you've shared on a previous podcast a little bit about um, how you were first inspired to be a geek. Want to tell that story again? And, and is there anybody else who's inspired you or who your heroes were? Yeah, um, my dad was always a big geek fan. He's really into sci-fi and he likes the gory sci-fi, like the fly and all that. Oh, God. Uh, cringe. Um, but he also likes Star Wars and Star Trek, and he's really big into the superheroes, you know, Superman, Batman, all those guys. And I, we used to watch cartoons in the mornings when I was growing up, and that was kind of really my big introduction to it. And he would be so excited to show me these things. He'd be like, no, we have to watch this, and we have to watch this next. And, um, you know, uh, gosh, we used to watch so many cartoons in the mornings. You know, that's what they used to do back in the day. And, and we would do all these things, and he would always take me to see the movies. You know, he'd be like, oh, you know, there's another Star Trek movie coming out. You know, we have to go. And that kind of turned into our thing. You know, so anytime there is a comic book, sci-fi, whatever movie, me and him, we're going to go see it together. That's just, you know, our thing. And that's kind of really how I got into it and grew to love it. 
is because of him. And we still do that to this day is, you know, anytime something comes out, we try to make it happen. I don't even live, we don't even live in the same city and we'll still try to make an effort to happen. So that's kind of, you know, just my thing with me and my dad. And did you have any personal heroes? Personal heroes, yes. Um, I have always loved Storm from (laughs) X-Men. Yes, Um, great character. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> she she controls the weather, you know what I mean? And for me, that always represented Mother Earth, you know? And in my mind, it was always Mother Earth is a black woman. And how powerful is that, you know, is that we control all of it? Is that, you know, you you are the one who, wind, rain, water, all of it is her. And I just, that always really just spoke to me. And she was always such a strong character. You know, what Storm said went, this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going. And this is how it's going to happen. And she could fly in the cartoons. And that was always great. So, um, I, I, she's always really been special to me. Bringing this back to a topic that resurfaces on our podcast. She has great hair. Um, (laughs) this last year, I had a couple of aha moments. I, in addition to like producing podcasts, I listened to a ton of them And last summer, when the whole Ghostbusters controversy was going on, both because of the fact that it had an all-female cast and because of the fact that uh, Leslie Jones was um, a black character in it, you saw the controversy, but then I was listening to a podcast, and on that podcast, a lady was sharing how much it meant to to her to see an all-female cast of heroes in this sci-fi fantasy world. Uh, Also last year, I had another similar moment when I was listening to another podcast where an African-American host was saying how important and how meaningful it was that we were able to see Black Panther in Captain America's Civil War. Have you guys had that type of experience as yourself when these films or characters debut? Jay Bernard, have you had that moment where you're like this is the culmination of a character i've followed um combination of a character i've followed um i can't really say that so much i could actually say that probably the biggest the the, the, the character who made the most impact on me was benjamin cisco from star trek deep space nine who up until the debut of that of that uh uh version of the uh, Star Trek franchise, we've never seen anything like him. And I was planning to talk about him a little bit more at length um, a little later on, which I, I just might do. But, but he, he was almost a black Superman. He was commander of the most strategic space station um, for Starfleet. He was the captain of, of the most badass ship, uh, fighter ship in, uh, in Starfleet. He was a religious icon. He was a single father who had a great relationship with both. Uh, uh, he was a widower with a great relationship with his son and his longtime affair, love affair, um, with another black female captain of her own spaceship, Cassidy Yates. And the thing that I think that impressed me the most about him as a black man was that Benjamin Sisko himself was also presented as a black man who maintained and retained his um, his roots and his Afrocentricity, his Afro, <laughs> you'll get it, Afrocentricity, whether it was in the 23rd century, 24th or 28th century. It, it, there's always on some level in, in science fiction or comics, the tendency to downplay ethnicity, race, cultural heritage. 
And in that particular character, we saw that that didn't necessarily have, that wasn't necessarily the case. And that was really my big aha moment that at some time in the future, we can still be who we are without apology or without it being something that needs to be um, devalued or, or taken away and, and, and still be not just an integral part of, of the goings on, but we can be the heroes and the leaders going forward. And that was just sort of like, like in, 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 in geekdom for me, that bam moment. I won't say we arrived, but we can go forward from here. Mel, did you have any such meaningful um, depictions? Um, well, I mean, I just talked about Storm, so that's kind of my one. If you want to just go back to one to okay. that, um, yeah. Okay. Let me leave it there. Mo, what about you? Jay Bernard took mine. Actually, uh, I was also going to go with uh, Avery oh, Brooks no! as Benjamin. It's it's okay. It's it's totally cool. I, I have a backup character, but you know, all the things that you said about uh, you know. Cisco were some of the things that I was going to say. I mean, I was just like completely mesmerized when I saw him on television for the first time. I'm thinking, wait, oh, this is cool. Like there's a black guy who is the commander of who is a who's a Starfleet commander and he is the lead of the show. You know, he can stand in a room with John Luke Picard and and. And have this back and forth conversation with him in which, you know, he's not going to give ground. If, if Cisco, you know, felt he was in the right, he was in the right. He did not back down to Picard. So I bow down to you, Jay Bernard, for mentioning uh, um, Cisco. I do have a backup character, uh, and it's actually an animated character. Okay. Um, her name's Claudia Grant. Some of you may be familiar with Robotech. I am not. You're not. Okay. So... Robotech was this, um, it was an anime that was shown in the States. It was comprised of three different anime cartoon series. One was called Macross, one was called uh, Southern Cross. Over here, it was called The Masters. And, and the third part was called, in the United States, called Robotech The Next Generation. And the Macross uh, portion of this space opera there was a black female character. Her name was Claudia Grant. She worked on the bridge of this battleship called the SDF-1. She very much was kind of the first officer. She kind of kind of uh, made sure all of the younger cast members, you know, they kind of stayed in, in their place. Um, she had a really good, strong relationship with the captain of the ship. But one of the more interesting things I th- when I saw this character, not just she was just a, f- a strong black female in a cartoon, because to be perfectly honest, I really didn't encounter that many black females in cartoons, let alone anime at this point. She was dating one of the fighter pilots in this series. His name was Roy Foker. He was white. And I just was like completely mesmerized by this interracial relationship on television and you know, this is 1985. I mean, and at this point in my family, I had an uncle who was who was married to a woman who was white. So, you know, it, I kind of saw some parallels and so forth. And and it just kind of opened my mind to, to a lot of things. Jamie, how about you? Well, I didn't really grow up with a 
a favorite black geek character. Uh, for me, that came later um, in terms of being able to see uh, the diversity that we're seeing now in um, comic book movies and, and with characters like uh, Luke Cage and things like that, which I didn't grow up with those characters, but I love that show. So I didn't really have one of those moments that you're talking about. But I will say a defining black geek moment for me came from the Cosby Show spinoff, It's a Different World, where the romantic male lead of that show, Dwayne Wayne, was a geek. He was a mathlete who scored a perfect math score on his SATs. And in the first season, he was more of the typical TV, uh, the way that TV does geeks all the time, like your Screech or your or your um, David Silver in the first season of 90210. He, he, was, he fit that kind of mode of the pesky geek who the girl wouldn't give the time of day with Lisa Bonet's Denise Huxtable. But in season two, he became the guy, the, the, the romantic object of spoiled Southern Belle Whitley Gilbert, who in reality, we know that that rarely happens, that, uh, you know, these spoiled, vapid it girls fall in love with the geek. But he, not only was he you know, an unashamed and unapologetic geek, but he also was a man's man. And he was, you know, he took charge and he, you know, would get Whitley together when she would get out of line. And, you know, they had this whole will they or won't they romance for, you know, five seasons ending in a marriage that, you know, was so soapy and good. And I mean, this guy, his whole through line was, you know, being, you know, this brilliant mathematician and getting these internships in Japan with this huge tech company called Kanishiwa. And the show ended with him developing a video game. And, you know, so that was just like, whoa. So, you know, Dwayne Wayne is somewhere out there, you know, running Black Book. <laughs> so, you know, I, I always, that was one of the first times when I was like, oh, so the geek can be fun. Then get the girl. All right, then. Well, someone who was fine, who didn't quite get the girl, was, and this is a terrible segue, was Chadwick Boston as Black Panther in, um, and as I mentioned earlier, in Marvel's Captain America Civil War. They're producing his own self-titled film um, op where he stars opposite Michael B. Jordan as Eric Killmonger, Lupita uh, Nyong'o as Nakia, and it has an all-star black cast. What impact do you guys think that film will have on the super mo superhero movie genre? Because outside of maybe, say, Fast and the Furious, which, let's face it, those people basically act and behave and have all kinds of stunts like superheroes, they're... Aren't, there isn't a lot of diversity in the Marvel, DC, or DCU um, cinematic universes. Bernard, what impact do you think that film will have? To be honest, it all depends on the box office to really break it down. <laughs> I mean, if it's a huge hit, um, you can bet that the studios, they'll be mining their catalogs for every black, Latino, and Asian superhero they can bring to the screen. And that's not just for movies, it's also for TV. Um, clearly the success of Luke Cage is in part behind the reason for the development of Black Lightning at the CW, right? 
But how far that will translate, you know, it remains to be seen because let's not forget in modern times what Blade, starring Wesley Snipes, would be kind of sort of the first true black superhero uh, movie in recent times. Good point. And and it was a big success that has spawned a couple of sequels, and there's a new Blade that's under development. And I believe that uh, Miles Morales, who is the African-American slash Latino version of Spider-Man, is getting his own animated movie. But does that mean that Falcon from the Marvel Universe will get his own spinoff, or that Mr. Terrific from the Arrow Universe will get his own spinoff? Um, it's, it's really up in the air. And I think what bodes well for the Black Panther film is the amount of excitement that we saw from audiences when Black Panther made his debut, his debut in uh, Civil War. I think he was probably one of the most popular elements of that entire movie. So I just, I'm sort of in this wait and see thing until the movie actually comes out. But it really boils down to the box office as far as I'm concerned. Mo, what are your thoughts? I agree with Jay Bernard. It it really does depend upon the box office. For every blade, you get steel with Shaq. I I don't know if you all remember that film. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you don't. Please not. (laughs) I just wish Shaq would get off of YouTube selling lotion. (laughs) You know, Gold Bond gave him an endorsement deal, and I swear before God, I can't even watch (laughs) movies, little videos. I watch videos of kittens and puppies to go to sleep to de-stress from all the Trump taking over the world moments. And every time I try to look at a video now, there's Shaq big ass rubbing some lotion on it. And I'm like, I know how to rub lotion, Shaq, but I didn't know he did a comic book movie. So go ahead. I'm sorry. It's okay. It was, it was, that movie was actually 20 years ago. So, and then there was also, I don't know if you you remember Spawn as well. Spawn was a, I'm sorry, okay. I like Spawn a lot. Not the uh, it's, it's, it's totally cool. So Spawn was actually in, it's the 25th anniversary of Spawn, not the movie, but actually the comic book character. It was, one, it was actually the second comic that debuted from Image Comics. Um, most people don't notice it, it was about a black man who, who was betrayed by a friend of his, um, made a deal with the devil, came back with superpowers because he loved his wife and he loved his, his, his family. I, I believe Spawn is actually in the creator of Spawn, Todd McFarlane, talking about Spawn bringing back. So hopefully if Black Panther does well, maybe that will help push things along with um, Spawn. The other thing is if, if, if Black Panther does well, I think it may bode well for when we get the next Green Lantern movie. Um, I, a lot of people believe part of the problem with the Ryan Reynolds version was that, you know, why did they use Hal Jordan? I remember when that Green Lantern the Green Lantern film came out, some of my friends who have younger kids asked me, why is the Green Lantern white? I thought he was black. Because <laughs> they watched the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited cartoons. They're on Cartoon Network, and they used the John Stewart Green Lantern, who's, who's black. Right. Um, so, so maybe if, you know, Black Panther does well, Warner Brothers will say, oh, yeah, we don't need to use Hal Jordan, we can use John Stewart. There's a there are several Green Lanterns. One is Kyle, a character named Kyle Rayner. He's of Mexican descent. Um, there's also a new female Green Lantern called Jessica Cruz. So hopefully, like I said, if Black Panther does Black Panther does well, Disney and Warner will think, well, we don't have to have just straight white male leads in these superhero movies. 
Jay Bernard, what were your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's part of the that's part of the problem or issue. I want, well, not maybe necessarily issue, but it's one of the things that, that we have to look at too. Is that the studios um, are looking at their class, the classic versions of their characters that they're bringing to the screen. Uh, Mo makes a very good point about the original Green Lantern. Um, I'm a, I grew up at a time when the only Green Lantern that we really knew um, was Hal Jordan. Um, even though before that there was another Green Lantern uh, by the name of um, it was Alan Grant. Alan, Alan Grant, if I'm correct, if I'm correct, Mo. Alan Scott. Alan Scott, thank you. Who is now gay, but that's another story. Anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. But I'm when I was growing up and reading comics in the 70s and 80s, it was all about Hal Jordan. So what the <clears throat> so there's an entirely new generation of, of 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 viewers and consumers who only know their version of the characters that one knows and loves. So is it going to be, uh, you know, John Stewart, which a younger generation only knows as Glenn, and that's their Green Lantern, as opposed to um, the original, opposed to Hal Jordan, which was the one that the studios are going to look to because that is considered the classic version of of Green Lantern. And, and folk fans know this well. It's, it's like looking at an actor taking over a role. The role will be now played by, and you have someone who brought, a, this will appeal to Jamie, when um, Mason Capwell was on Santa Barbara. Oh, and here we go. Didn't think that drinking podca- had, game was going to come to this podcast, but apparently it has. Keep there going. it is. The, when you have the original Mason Capwell, which was then replaced by a second Mason, which was replaced by a third Mason. Uh, third actor who played the character and in each of those cases you, you, you came away looking at the interpretation of that's my mason as opposed to what came after it's really the same way from a different perspective with with these comic characters that are being brought to screen which you know which version is going to get the bigger bang to the bigger bang for the buck because i guarantee you there is there's a group of people who only know miles morales as spider-man Mm-hmm. As opposed to Peter Parker, Peter Parker is is an alien to them. So who, you know, where does Sony and or Marvel go next with the Spider-Man franchise? And in um, those same in those same terms, it's also interesting what DC has done with Justice League by having Aquaman instead of being a blonde white man be a Polynesian. Right, right. So it's it, it's really this 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 tug of war between what the studio thinks audiences want and what audiences really want, which sort of gets into some other things that we might get into later. Jamie, what are your thoughts on the impact of Black Panther, and would you like to respond to the uh, Santa Barbara reference? No, I just would like to say let the record show that everyone else (laughs) realizes that Santa Barbara is a through line to all popular culture. So you are in the deficit. Amen. So, oh, you uh, knew that Jay Bernard being on this podcast, you were going to have an I ally in that. I did not. I did not know. But all roads do lead back to Santa Barbara. So anyway, but um, no, um, I am going to go. I'll say this. This is why I think the Black Panther movie could be a huge success, because there are black people who just like, you know, there's this whole belief that. Well, it's not just a belief. Black will will buy and support black. Not always, you know. Now, you know, we won't go see Miracles of Saint Anna when Spike Lee 
debuts it, but we'll go see Medea in outer space. But now, um, or Halloween Adventure. Yeah, you know yeah. that kind of that we'd always support when we need to. But you can best believe I'll be there to see Black Panther, and I'm just, you know, I'm just a, that's just me being an entertainment industry fan. Whereas I'm not gonna go look at a lot of these other ones. I did like Deadpool. I watched that one the other day. On, on demand and I thought it was hilarious and I'd never heard of that character and never knew anything about it so I was able to really just enjoy the the story of itself because it was so, so you enjoyed Deadpool but not Guardians of the Galaxy no I did not I thought that was some foolishness I was like why am I watching this talking <laughs> Deadpool <laughs> is not foolishness but Guardians Deadpool of the Galaxy is is hilarious He's what like, world do I live know, in that was a funny ass movie but so I won't go pay money to go see Guardians of the Galaxy at the movies, but I will be there for an all-black superhero movie. Yes, best believe with my fro picked out and mm-hmm. my black turtleneck on, I will be there. And I think that there are a lot of black audience members who aren't maybe comic book fans who will feel the same way, just because that's a seminal moment. Um, so yeah, I definitely... Um, and I, I, I can understand why to the true comic book geeks who are black that that is going to be such a huge moment because that's what I felt when Empire came about like the primetime soap Empire which you know as of right now I'm not as three seasons in I'm no longer that enthused but when it debuted I was like oh my god as a soap opera fan who loved Dynasty and Melrose Place and 90210 and every single one that ever came down the pike and basically had to be okay with one or two or maybe three you know ancillary characters except for dynasty with diane carroll she actually had a prominent role but generally speaking we got a token black character for those shows and they were usually the dance instructor or the the noble doctor or something boring um to actually get a full-on black soap opera with black people being treacherous and scheming and conniving i was like i loved it so I think that there will be that. Ex- I've seen it. I've seen it on Twitter. Every time um, I follow this uh, black film blog called Shadow and Act, and every time they do a post about a Black Panther casting, people just lose their shit, you know. And I'm I'm very happy about that because I'm like I I don't have. It's not my emotion because I didn't grow up with those characters. But people are like, Oh my God, Angela Bassett is in it, and I'm like, Oh okay, fist pound, fist pound. So yeah, I will definitely be there for that. Um, and yeah, I mean, Luke, you know, we joke about this. I mean, those are the movies that Hollywood are not afraid to greenlight right now. If you're writing the next um, Boomerang or uh, trying to write the next Love Jones, you're gonna get an art house indie release, <laughs> you know, and hopefully a video on demand package the same day. You're not going to be able to get that in the multiplex unless you somehow figure out how to write Amy Schumer in it, vomiting or, or something gross like that. Melissa McCarthy. But, or Melissa McCarthy <laughs> farting and talking about farting because, oh yes, romantic comedy should all be about women wanting to fart. But anyway, that's another podcast. But, you know, if you're trying to write a comic book movie, Hollywood is listening because it's really hard to get people out of their 
you know, flat screen worlds where they can basically stage their own movie experience at home with a big enough TV and, a, you know, enough streaming platforms. It's really hard to draw people out into the multiplexes these days. And so they're going with sure bets and those are franchise films. So getting black people to the table more and more is a good thing. Mel, I want to get your thoughts on the impact that Black Panther will have, but I also want to sort of expand that. In addition to what it could do for other films, do you think that it's an opportunity for people like Boston and Jordan to become the next Will Smith, Samuel Jackson, Denzel? And by that, I mean anchor their own films without it being a superhero or having Stallone in it. I for one and with the rest of everyone else is are so very excited for Black Panther to come out um, especially with being an all black cast and all black cast superhero movie I think that's powerful in and of itself and Felicia Rashad's in the cast and can we just talk she's in a comic book movie like my worlds are colliding and I'm dying inside and it's fantastic well but, between um, Alfre Woodard and uh, Felicia Rashad you should be in heaven I'm dying okay I've died three times I came back because I have to see this movie because but, you're a superhero with multiple lives <laughs> pretty much but um, no it's gonna be fantastic but I do agree with everyone else when they say it depends on the box office because if it doesn't make enough money they're not gonna push put enough push behind it they're not gonna try and make another one that's not gonna be a thing so it's super important for everyone to get out there and go and see it and give your reviews and say if you liked or didn't like it but please at least just go and see it I think that's very important and then as for the second half of the question it could happen I, I see what's been happening with Michael B. Jordan like I feel like they're just building him up you know they're building him up to be that next maybe Denzel or whoever else you know that's and out there and as someone who's watched him from his early days on The Wire and then All My Children, to see his progression is just amazing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he's a good actor. You know what I mean? I think he has a ways to go still, but I feel like they're at least building him up because I really enjoyed him in Creed. You know, um, I thought he was pretty right in that. So I, I think it could happen. This could be, you know, a nice uh, springboard for him as well, because, you know, Will Smith didn't really take off until Independence Day went crazy. So it it could happen. I'm not saying it, it can't, but um, it would be fantastic if it did, because he's beautiful. Um, but I'm, I'm not opposed to, to any of it. Anything to help, you know, the black actors to get out there more and become more popular and mainstream i'm all for bernard what are your thoughts or is it possible that the era of like will smith bruce willis just being solo anchors of action films is over are are we at a point where now it needs to be a wide cast of characters i think probably you're we're, we're closer to the wide cast of characters end of that spectrum even though um you know that that's that's across the board um you can't really do something without having you know your breakout star plus at least two or three oscar or golden globe nominees and some really strong solid supporting characters you know to get your film off the ground it seems um in, in major multiplexes near you but with that being said i do think that mr jordan is is in an a-lister at least he's an a-minus lister already and you know we've already got uh lupita nyongo as you know, an Oscar winner herself in the in the film um, strikes me about this particular thing as I was sort of writing my notes was apropos to this this subject, 
being black history, this kind of cuts a, an entirely different way. If the movie's bad, or if it does really badly at the box office, it can really tank a career too. Catwoman with Halle Berry. <laughs> Let's not discuss <laughs> that. <laughs> um, Gothica. Exhibit B. Exhibit, oh, Gothica. Exhibit B, Michael Jordan himself in the Fantastic Four, who got pretty dinged up by, you know, both the bad critical reception and the not as stellar box office, you know, as I believe it was Sony hoped for that. I think that that didn't, like, knock him off his perch, but it certainly made people step back just a little bit. Because it was a was good thing he had Creed in the works. Right, exactly. So this could cut both ways for, for people who are involved in that project. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, Mo, what are your thoughts? Well, I think I agree with what everybody's saying. Um, I think we could also throw in John Boyega, who was in Star Wars. I mean, yeah, Star Wars The Force Awakens into this conversation as well as a young and upcoming black actor as well. Um, Again, I, I, I think at a certain point that, you know, the public will will want and demand films, television shows, etc. That is very representative of the country that they live in. I would have, I would, I'm, I agree with Jay Bernard. We're on the cusp of things. I would have said had had November gone a different different different, uh, different direction, I would say that things would be. <laughs> going there a little bit faster but in trump's america uh, yeah you know we'll, we'll just have to wait and see you're being very diplomatic jamie what are your thoughts no i already think that michael b jordan is a i mean he is a box office draw at this point he i i think his mixture of hits and misses is pretty on par with you know i mean for every Deadpool, there's a Green Lantern with, with mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds. So, I mean, you know, they all have their hits and misses. I mean, Julia Roberts was the queen of the box office, but then she had some some stinkers along the way, too, like um, uh, Mary Riley and things like that. So, I mean, in, you know, in terms of a career. And, and Will Smith, your example. Will Smith hasn't been Will Smith in five movies. So, I mean... It's almost just like Hollywood just refuses to accept that that ship has sailed and sunk. Um, but yeah, has I think, Will Smith sunk? I think so. I mean, I think if Will Smith did a a rom com, a solid, smart rom com like Hitch, he could have a, a comeback. But if he continues to do these Scientology light movies. Um, black people, you know, this is the thing. Yes, you can cross over, but you always have to still remember your core audience. Denzel did that very well. Um, Hallie does that fairly well. But Will and Jada found out the hard way that if you forget about black people, black people will forget about you. Because when they launched that boycott the awards because we'll you know black people were like we are not here for this Mm -hmm. y'all y'all ain't been with us since fresh prince and a different world and now you want to try come back and get us to mount mount an offensive and we were sitting there blowing you know blowing our fingernails like you want our help so um yeah i think if will smith did 
Look, Will Smith can do it. I'm going to tell you, this is it. Lord knows this is something I can't believe I'm saying out loud. The way he can rebuild his career is to be in a Medea movie and <laughs> to, to date one of Medea's nieces. He needs to be the light-skinned Negro that saves one of Medea's nieces. Uh, and it'll make $100 million and black people will love him again. And then maybe the next time he wants to go fight a space dragon, we'll follow along. But... You know, you got to give us something in between these space monsters and stuff, because now, you know. <laughs> Jay Bernard, what are your thoughts on Will Smith? Uh, well, I don't really think about him much these days, to be honest. Jamie brought up, you know, maybe he might need to do a rom-com. Didn't he try to do something sort of kind of similar on a slightly more serious note? Yes, with that it was Margot terrible. Robbie? Margot yeah, that Margot Robbie. Was that the last? Yeah. yeah. Which one was that? Yeah. Was that was the one where they were cons. Yeah, um, the one oh, where yeah. they were cons. Well, let, me, was... let me rephrase. He needs to do a rom-com with a sister. He needs to do a rom-com oh. with Nia Long as his lady. Or like he when he first okay. started out, you know, with Vivica and Nia Long. See, that's the thing. Then he got famous, and his leading ladies got lighter skin and lighter skin and lighter skin. It's like you need if you come on back home, Will get to Nylathem as your leading lady. <laughs> His <laughs> film with Eva Mendez was pretty popular. Mm, it was, but so not we, free. She's not we yeah. want to see a sister in these movies. I yeah. get tired of all the time when they want to do a rom com, then they want to go get a beige girl or a white girl. Get you a sister again, and then you know we'll build you back up, and you can go make the twenty five million to fight the space leprechauns and whatever. I just think I just think that with, with Will, if, if if anything, I want to say desperation, but you know he's trolling for awards at this point. You know he did ever he since did, Ali you know, concussion. I ever since Ali, you know he did concussion. And, and that was supposed to be his surefire, you know, Oscar win. And, you know, and now he's trolling for Francois, a movie that I thought was still terrible, but very enjoyable. You know, he's, 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 he's trolling for awards. He's, he's trolling for franchises. And it's unclear as, as to what his vision for his career is. And I don't think that audiences have yet figured out what a Will Smith movie means anymore. Okay. Mo, I think I saw you wanting to get in on this. Yeah, I was going to throw in the, the I guess, the 800-pound gorilla in the room. No one brought up Suicide Squad, <laughs> Will's movie from last year. Which was a terrible movie. Though in, <laughs> though in that movie, he was basically Will Smith playing Will Smith with, as an assassin. It It was really not much of a movie where he actually went into the character it was just will smith being will smith at least for me now i agree with you on that but i mean again that movie love it hate it whatever you know it made money now you know i can't say you know how many african-americans came out to see suicide squad because of will Nobody. Right. We bought it at, um, in front of Kroger when Wee Man showed up with um, bootlegs. I, I went to go see it because A, I liked the Suicide Squad, and B, because Viola Davis was in it. You pretty much, mm -hmm. you put Viola Davis in anything, and I'm going to see it. So, And you, if I remember correctly, you weren't a big fan of the film. No, that movie's trash. Yeah. 
Jamie, I want to talk to you a little bit. You've touched on it earlier, but it was one of the questions that I wanted to bring up for the discussion. On Pop Confidential, you've talked about how you don't like the white savior movies where all some white person is always saving a black person. Nope. This year, Hidden Figures is the story of mathematicians Catherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, Mary Jackson, who are literally human computers and the minds behind John Glenn's space mission success. Um, it won a SAG award. It's Oscar nominated. Do you? What do you think of this uh, recognition of a true story and the fact that it's had commercial success? Do you think it's a pivot point for possibly new uh, a new type of story being told in Hollywood? I pray so because it is you know like I was speaking about the how I would love to see Madam C J Walker's story. It is a period piece that deals with the fact that there was racism and sexism at those times, but it doesn't have a plucky little redhead saving the women (laughs) from themselves because we as black people who have our parents and our grandparents who came from that era, we know who saved us. We saved ourselves. Yes, there were white allies. There have always been white abolitionists and white civil and Jewish civil rights people, but by and large, we saved ourselves. It was not, you know, the plucky little redhead girl writing about the plight of the maids that saved black women in the civil rights movement. That's why you can miss me with movies like The Help and the one with Sandra Bullock saving the big dumb football player boy. And I know that was a true story too, but, you know, if you delve deeper into that, there are some discrepancies in those types of stories. And it's like a lot of times white people do those movies because they need to feel better about what has happened in history. So they have to do, I'll tell you when that, that one with Sandra Bullock came out, um, the blind side, I was at the movies watching, I believe it was sex in the city. And I was coming out of sex in the city. Cause you know, that's the white superheroes I want to see some, some bitches wearing Prada, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm coming out of the sex. Of, and you know, these white women in Texas were just crying over that, the blind side, you know, these, and you know, they were Republicans, well healed, probably had just left Chico's, uh, you know, with their little Chico's outfits on the matchy matchy. And they were all just crying. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I called my mother and I said, I ought to walk up behind them and be like, I ain't got no home. Can y'all take me in? So I could just be like parlaying for three or four weeks in their guest room laughing. <laughs> they think I'm slow. But, you know, that is the type. Those movies just happen so much. And I, I do not like them. No. So, yes, yes. I'm so happy to see these movies that are, and even, you know, like with Fences, which, you know, isn't a geek movie, but it's just showing you know, that in that time that this black man, this very flawed black man, saved his own family by doing what we've always done, which is go to work. So, um, yes, to to answer your question, you know, I I don't like, and Hollywood has just, at some point, the embarrassment of it has to make them realize that it's not financially prudent anymore. You can't do a Gods of Egypt and have only white men in Egypt and you can't do you know and and beyond black people you know Matt Damon is catching hell right now you know the great wall with the great wall it's like really it's just like stop it stop you know it's it's like stop seeing the world through your own eyes and see the world 
through the eyes of the people who actually were the heroes of those parts of the world because there wasn't a lot of heroism in colonialism. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's not a very heroic historical endeavor, despite what our you know history books tell us. They were edited with agendas. It's like, tell the stories of people from the point of view of the people from those regions instead well, of inserting a white hero to save the world all the time. And to that note, one of the people, like when I was thinking about the topic of who my heroes were, other than something that came from the Bible, one of the stories that I always loved as a child was the story of Francis Scott Key. And so growing up, I th I sort of thought of him as a hero. And then I did research on him mm. as an adult. And I was like, that mm. is a story that is not like the story you hear about Francis Scott Key is not the full picture. And it really made that was another aha moment. I was like, oh, oh, um, all of them. Christopher Columbus, you know, in 1492, Christopher Columbus said the ocean blue. Yeah. And then came and slaughtered a bunch of indigenous people. I mean, yep. that's that's the thing that, you know, and Mel and I grew up in Texas, which I think is hands down the worst state in terms of editing the history books to make the, to solidify the white savior complex. I mean, you read those stories. I remember being a kid crying about the Alamo and hold on. And I'm mm -hmm. like, then you realize it's like, wait, this was their shit. Texas yep. was part of Mexico to begin with. But, you know, as a kid, you're reading that and you, you believe it. You believe the fairy tale that's been spun that justifies the narrative. Well, and by that same token, me being raised in a rural area in farming and ranching communities, I grew up and I honestly had never, was never, ever exposed to the idea of an African-American cowboy. And as an adult, I learned that there was actually a large seg segment of it. But you almost never see no. it. No. You know, you my never, grandparents, you never see God it. love them, and I'm so grateful to them for this. My grandmother, you know, bought me a, a collection of African-American encyclopedias. And I read them from the time I was 9 or 10 years old and learned my own history so that I didn't have to just be beholden to that one month a year, this month, that every Sorry if year, this is a token podcast. No, 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 no. It, it is what it is. Um, but, you know, growing up, you know, Black History Month would come around and they'd have the two or three black teachers at your school get together this little program. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, you'd hear, and they all have all the inventions laid out. Yeah. So all I knew is Harriet Tubman got us on the railroad and somebody made some peanut butter. That's all I knew. And I learned that once a month every year. And thank God that my grandparents decided to educate me on my on their own because I wasn't going to get that from the school system and you know well, we're and, gonna get harriet tubman and george washington carver and his peanuts and, and that's that <laughs> and for me for me as a white person i only got the stories that you're talking about like i said i'm working i'm participating in a presentation for black history month at work and i was like okay there's got to be more things than just the stories that everybody's already going to tell so i was looking it up and what i learned is that there was a doctor who basically or a, a inventor who basically 
made it possible so that blood plasma could be stored and that the first blood banks were created because of him. Another one, like the real McCoy. When I hear the real McCoy, I think of uh, my mind immediately jumps to something Old West. Turns out it was a black um, inventor who invented something for trains that made it so that the axles could be oiled better and the reason why the real mccoy came about was because of the fact that people didn't want the imitations that were made they wanted the real mccoy i also learned that i get to eat potato chips because they were invented by a black person and i was like i thank you for a wide spectrum of things um, well, i have to not thank them whoever did that because <laughs> that's probably a good hundred pounds on my ass that i owe thank you <laughs> Thank you, ancestor. Why didn't you create some asparagus and make it taste good? Genetically produce some asparagus and make it taste like a potato chip is what you should have been doing. Well, maybe they weren't the ones who invented the ruffles have ridges. Um, Mo, what are your thoughts? Do you uh, think this is a pivot? I, I really hope so. I mean, I feel like my, my opinion, I, I feel like when there are times in this country in which, you know, I guess we're in a period where, you know, where people now will feel more comfortable about, you know, <sighs> exploring these ideas more because of the everybody's in such a resistance kind of mode that we will, you know, stand up to history and we be willing to tell our tell our stories a little bit more just to get out the information because, you know, we're just tired of misinformation. And, and I think that we now have black producers, um, black, black writers, black actors, black actresses who are willing to, you know, delve into this to talk about these things more. Bernard, did you have any thoughts? A couple of, of quick notes. Um, one thing, going back to what uh, Jamie and you were saying, is, does, does anybody here watch Timeless on NBC? I do. Yes, I do. That would be a no. Well, first of all, it's goofy and it's stupid. And it's fun. And amazing. But it is fun. It is is fun and amazing at the same time. But you have to give it credit for doing two things. One, it also, uh, in a recent episode of Timeless, they brought in uh, Katherine Johnson from NASA, who was the subject of Hidden Figures. And they also um, uh, brought in... Bass, Bass, Bass Reeves, who was the original Lone Ranger, who was black, and uh, Tonto, they were certainly not uh, what we've seen in, you know, big screen depictions of the Lone Ranger and Tonto as being, you know, a white man and, and his barely literate uh, Native American slash Indian uh, sidekick. Um, and, you know, that show, as goofy, but as fun and as awesome as it is, you know, they really set out to do some things that correct the record as much as they can. But to the larger point uh, about having stories that tell our story, I think that Moonlight and Fences are, are speak more to your original point um, about not needing a white savior. In Hidden figures, you have two relatively sympathetic white characters. You have um, John Glenn, obviously, and Hal, and Hal Harrison, who was uh, played by um, Kevin Costner. Um, but in Moonlight and in Hidden, uh, in Moonlight and in Fences, you have no white characters whatsoever. Um, and you can still tell those stories um, where... It's not saying that white characters or white actors aren't welcome, 
but they don't, they're not necessary narratives forward. And so I think that those two movies speak just a little bit more to, to that point being made about needing the white savior character um, that uh, both you and Daniel were talking about. Mel, um, geekdom can be savage, and the internet is brutal, it seems, when white characters of beloved franchises are recast as by black actors. We have, or and it's not just film. I mean, we had Hermione Granger, who was recast of the Harry Potter franchise for the stage play. We had Michael B. Jordan in Fantastic Four as the Human Torch. Leslie Jones, I mean, was attacked ruthlessly for her role in um, Ghostbusters. The rumor of a black Mary Jane in Spider-Man or the suggestion of Idris Elba as James Bond gets very visceral reactions. Um, as a, like, how do you ignore this outrage? Um, and do you, when you do, or if you don't, do you focus on things like that Black Panther and Hidden Figures? Or is this just something that you as a black person have had to come to terms with like blocking out and ignoring? Or do you just stick black Twitter on them? So I think it's very important not to ignore these comments. I think it's important to acknowledge them and have a counter argument against them. Because the reason these people are so angry is because this is what they've been fed their entire lives. If they've been fed that this character is white, this is what's going on. And the second we change it, it feels like they're being erased. And that's why they're upset. At least that's what I think. You want to come at me for that? I don't care. But that's my opinion. But it's because that's what you've been taught this whole time and we're going to change it up. Well, how do you think I feel growing up the whole time and watching all these characters that don't look like me? You know what I mean? It's, it, it, there's two sides to every coin. All you have to do is pick it up and flip it over to see the other side. So, and I think it's important that everybody looks at that, but you, you cannot ignore it because you ignore it and la, 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 these things don't happen. Mm -mm, that's, that's not how we're going to solve anything. It's not how we're going to fix anything. And I think stories like hidden figures and moonlight that are coming out. There are stories about us told by us mm -hmm. and they're focused on us as well. And there's not, you know, another character that the, the story is being told through because that's a lot of what the help was going on is that it's a story about us, but it's not told by us. It focuses a lot on Emma Stone's character and it's told by her, you know, it's their stories told by her. So, I think that's a lot that has to do with the help, especially, but with Moonlight and uh, Fences, especially too, that it's told by us, about us, for us, you know what I mean? So, and that's where the focus needs to lie with stories, you know, about our people is that we need to tell it and it needs to be told through our eyes, not through someone else who's looking on the outside in and not living it. And even, and I'll say this, even if it's, you know, whatever color the creator is, but we need more stories with strong black protagonists yes. like Blade and like Luke Cage, uh, which I assume those were, well, Luke Cage was created by, what was it, was it Stan Lee or I know it's the Marvel um, world. I don't know what creator did it, but I, this is my thing about, you know, because, okay, so whenever I see the outrage I, I I parcel it. I can sep I compartmentalize it. When it's someone getting upset about a comic book character, I roll my eyes at it because I'm like, really? Why is it that important to you? But I get it because I'll say this. 
one of my all-time favorite characters is Lucky Santangelo from the Jackie Collins um, franchise of novels. If suddenly someone decided to make Lucky Santangelo black, I would balk at that because the whole part of her story that makes sense for me is that she's the daughter of an Italian mobster from who rose to power along the lines with the fiction with the real life you know this fictional monster Gino Santangelo came along with the same at the same time as the Myers Lanskys and the Lucky Lucianos who is who he named his daughter after and things of that nature so I don't need now if someone wants to do maybe I'll do it wants to do a story about a black daughter of a black crime family that rises to power then yes, I think that will be badass, but I don't need for Lucky Santangelo to become black. I I think that that is where a lot of times we miss the point and we piss off people because, like, again, so comic book characters where, you know, uh, like Mo Walker was was saying, you know, a lot of times there have been multiple shades of the Green Lantern. So that's one reason why I don't see why there's this racism aimed at you know because when you look at those comments they tend to be super racist like what leslie jones went Mm -hmm. went through from breitbart i mean which is a political website i mean the fact that they took it upon themselves to just rip this woman to shreds um it that was horrifying but james bond i say when i'm the type of person that i'm just like screw James Bond. I mean, I like James Bond, but I don't need a black James Bond. What I need is someone to create a franchise for Idris Elba that is just as iconic as James Bond. Because I get why people are upset or they feel that that is a character who is tied specifically to Scottish and British British history, which Idris Elba is British, but... Mm -hmm. I get it. I get why that is a folk hero of a certain, you know, ethnicity. Fine. And to me, even when it becomes an issue, it's like that would just make me want to create the most badass black spy character in the galaxy so that it could just make James Bond irrelevant. I mean, that's just how I feel about certain things like that. It's like I do feel we just have to create more of our own iconic characters and not because I don't think the answer is going through popular culture and deciding to make white characters black. You know, I don't think that that's, it doesn't always serve the purpose. It, I mean, sometimes you have a character that can like Catwoman has been both black and white um, in various iterations and, um, both have been successful and you know that that's a testament because i mean even in the 60s both eartha kitt and um lee merriweather played her and both i think were pretty popular but well, there you are... look at aquaman today i'm going to go back to it for a second but you didn't see near the outrage with jason momoa well see and i didn't like that you know you and i talked about that when i saw that he was aquaman i was like wait but aquaman is supposed to be blonde and and a lot of it isn't about seeing for me that's not a race thing but you do see that with internet trolls it's yeah. just like these effing you know but for me it was just like the aesthetic in my head is that aquaman is blonde with a tacky orange and green outfit on and so when i saw jason momoa i was like okay you know 
this is not but the same with the flash you know that was not my you know that's not who i had in my head with as the flash um i had you know a geeky little brown haired boy um you know so you you do tend to have these it's it's i think it's wherever you meet the um the franchise like you know mo walker was talking about the kids who grew up watching the justice league cartoons and they had a a black green lantern i grew up watching challenge of the super friends and super friends and green lantern was white and so you know it i think it is wherever you you want whenever someone adapts your favorite franchise you want it to reflect that you want it to at least embody that spirit and i think the dc comics world does that really well on the cw um for example you know this was a comic book um again this is i think this kind of fits into geekdom because it did have a comic um tie-in but jim and the holograms loved jim and the holograms and i think they royally botched that movie movie. because they tried to make it more for this youtube generation of you know and you know none of the girls really matched the origin story was totally different they decided we're going to make eric raymond a woman and they did all of these things that you know you can just see a bunch of marketers sitting around in a boardroom not creatives going well let's make it i mean jim is already pretty female empowering because it's a woman rock star who saves her family's empire by becoming a mysterious rock star. So why they needed to make the villain a female also was kind of silly to me. And so a lot of times you want someone... That's why I really like Greg Berlanti and what he does with geekdom. Because he tries his... He changes things up and modernizes them. But he also gives you the old feels that you got from why you fell in love with it 20 years ago to me if you're gonna do something totally new and revolutionary create your own thing and don't call it james bond call you know make uh, make a new i mean my god with everything going on standards by gem standards hannah montana was sort of gem oh hannah montana was way more of a gem reboot exactly that movie was but you know with everything going on in the world and you know that's not my wheelhouse but i i do like a good spy movie but that's not something i'd ever write but i mean look at what's going on in the world right now with all of the talk about russia and the possibility that our our current president was compromised by Russia and, you know, the, the KGB guy, the ex KBG guy, a KGB guy that was, might've known something about it just came up dead. And then, you know, the M's, I mean, hello, let's create a new spy story for a black guy based on some of these stories. I mean, when was James Bond created anyway? Like the fifties, the forties, it's like, come well, up with something new. That's if one you, thing if that, you watch timeless, you would know that Ian Fleming was a spy in world war two. Okay. Well, I will put that on my DVR for that point alone. Uh, <laughs> well, timeless. I was going to say, well, Jamie timeless is, is constantly dropping, uh, uh, General Hospital references left and right, you know. And, and Brandon Barash was on it. Oh, wow. Okay, well, maybe now, Simo, you're speaking my language now. <laughs> when I tell him that Brandon Barash is going to be on, it's like, oh, I don't think I'll check out. I, I don't Someone trust else you, Luke. I don't I, trust you. Oh, I see how it is. <laughs> Mo, oh, how, do you, how do you handle 
the social social media outrage. Would you think sometimes they have a reason up to be upset, or do you think that there's just more undertones that feed it? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, and I can understand. You know, if if for instance one day suddenly you know Batman. Bruce Wayne was black, you know, I may be, you know, like, might be scratching my head a little bit. Um, in comics, you know, it, 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 it's kind of this interesting dynamic because you have um, franchises, these archetypes, where people will take a character, like, let's say, from, from Arrow, for instance, Mr. Terrific on there. Um, the original Mr. Terrific was a white character. The Mr. Terrific on Arrow is based on um, the Michael Hulk, a Michael Hulk version that was created sometime in the 90s. Taking a name, taking an archetype, and then repackaging it in a different face or a different ethnicity, you know, I think... Well, and like, look at Wally West. There's different versions of Wally West. Yeah, and that's that's one of those things when you're dealing with something like that. That's that's a bit trickier than I'm I'm talking like somewhat something like um, Captain Marvel, like uh, Miss Marvel. Um, there's a Marvel. The, um, there's a movie coming out featuring a character named, named uh, Captain Marvel. The character's alter ego is Carol Danvers. She originally back in the '70s, and Throughout the, the 80s, and some, uh, it was called Miss Marvel. She was a member of the Avengers. The current Miss Marvel is a teenage Pakistani um, young lady and totally different character. Carol Danvers still exists, but when that new character was introduced, the new Miss Marvel was introduced, there was so much outrage because people were like, well, you know, why are we, you know, why can't, uh, why does this new character have to have that, that name? And my feeling is it's it's not, you know, uh, you know, changing the ethnicity of the original character. It's giving you the know, lega- their the legacy, legacy to someone to someone yeah. else. Giving People legacy. acted that way about Nancy Drew. See, you know, CBS um, uh, ordered a pilot a few seasons ago, or was it last season? Uh, last they were going to do a modern day tell- retelling of Nancy Drew with a Persian actress and there were, you know, I saw um, women of color were very excited about that on my Twitter timeline. But then I also saw the, the anger that we talk about. And, you know, I mean, if I was a sociologist, I probably would be a little less eye rolly about this because I do think that there, I can understand how, if you are, a conservative white person in America after the last eight years of progressive change that has come about and, you know, gay rights and so many other things that have just taken so long to get to, I can, you know, the person who is empathetic in me, it doesn't make me, I'm not sympathetic, but I'm empathetic to the fact that that can be like a, well, just WTF, everything is changing. It's like we got the gays getting married. We got this going on. We got that going on. We got a black guy in the White House. And now they want to make Nancy Drew Persian. Enough is enough. And then they get on Twitter and Facebook anonymously and they vent that frustration that they feel about how much the world is changing. 
into the fact that you're taking Nancy. Look, I read a million Nancy Drew books. She was always described as having strawberry blonde hair and being, what was it, five foot six? I don't even remember. But she was just your ideal 18-year-old white girl who managed to run around her town solving murder mysteries every week. I don't know why there weren't reports about all the murders (laughs) happening in that little small town. But, I mean... I can I can understand how that might make you just say, GD, enough is enough. Can't we keep Nancy Drew? Can't we just have Nancy Drew? And, you know, and that pilot never moved forward. For me, my thing was, well, we already had a Nancy Drew reboot, and it was called Veronica Mars. <laughs> so I was mm-hmm. like, you know, to me, it's more of a, the bigger problem is that Hollywood is so stuck on fresh ideas that they feel the need instead of they're so scared because you could have easily said, I'm going to create a new show about a Persian American female detective. And you might've had a huge hit that, you know, I look at what Lee Daniels again did with empire. He didn't say I'm going to create a black dynasty. I think that would have gone over like a lead balloon with people. If he would have said, I'm casting Taraji P. Henson as Alexis Carrington and I'm redoing Dynasty, there would have been unnecessary fights on Twitter and Facebook about it. And the show might have been a flop because you would have had people judging it against the original Dynasty. But what he did is what writers do since the beginning of time. All writers are inspired by something else. You know, Richard and Esther Shapiro, who created Dynasty, were inspired by um, the movie, um, not Caligula, the miniseries about, um, oh God, it wasn't... um, I forget, but they were inspired by a miniseries about ancient, um, about the ancient royals. I, I forget. So there's always something that inspired a piece of art. So he just unapologetically admitted, hey, I'm inspired by, um, you know, Dynasty. I mean, Batman was inspired by, um, God, what was it? Jay Bernard, I know you would know this. Um, wasn't it the Batman, Shadow? Batman yeah. was, he was Zorro, right. Yeah, so there's always – so I think that if you admit that something you're inspired by Nancy Drew to create something new, you're going to – to me, yeah. Now, Hollywood's not going to be as, as quick to greenlight some nameless new franchise, but I just wish they would get – because that's where we are. A lot of it is Hollywood saying, well – We need a franchise. and I, and we'll, I want to do been- Sweet Valley High, but – because ethnicity is in, I'm going to make it two Japanese girls instead of two girls from two blonde girls. And then you have people pissed off. And well, and it's sort of, and like when you're mentioning all this sort of, to me, it comes to Hollywood is so sometimes so desperate for a title. Look at what happened with the murder. She wrote reboot. I mean, that's where they just blatantly wanted the title and then they were going to screw with everything else. But then Olivia, uh, Octavia Spencer ends up the victim of all those bad headlines because it's just a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, a few years ago, they greenlit a pilot for a gay um, (laughs) heart-to-heart. You know, it really is. I mean, it's like, um, 
we've all seen these movies about Hollywood and, you know, them making fun of the development cycle and how ridiculous it can be. But it truly and, you know, Showtime has a show called Episodes that really gets it. But I mean, that is what, you know, as we get to peak, you know, we're in peak TV, which you think would make people try to excel um, in terms of storytelling. And we are seeing a lot of that, but most of it is happening on, you know, Netflix or cable. But the broadcast networks are so freaking scared that they don't know what to do. And so it's like they're looking at, you know, any day now we're going to get a, you know, a reboot of, well, you know, it's pretty much they've already done it. I was going to say or another Little re- house on the prairie. Yeah, but it'll be black people on the prairie, you know, some black people on the prairie because, you know, they or little or, house in the hood or no, it'll be, you know, um, pequeño casa in la prairie, you know, because they'll make it all Hispanic people living on the border of Texas and Mexico. I mean, because that is what, look, I need to write that one down because I bet you I could get that one greenlit starring Eva Longoria as <laughs> Carolina Ingles. Um, you know, I mean, it's, that's where we are. They just, they're so scared not to have a name because they think that, I'll be honest, okay, y'all know I love me some soap operas. So the CW is is rebooting Dynasty. I got my hands on the script. It's terrible. It is terrible to borrow from our Jillian Bow. I cringed. I mean, and, and mostly it's this is the thing. If you're going to make a show multi-ethnic, you need to put some thought into it. So the pilot really just makes the characters black or Latina without any real, like Crystal is now Crystal Flores and, you know, Sammy Joe, her nephew, spoiler alert, or her niece in the original is now her nephew um, because they are, you know, I guess mercifully they're skipping past the whole Stephen, you know, liking boys and girls. They're just making him gay. But, you know, when I read that, I groaned because I'm just like, okay, so he's Sam now. Uh, But there's no real, the Colbys are black, you know, and I'm like, there isn't really any thought into what this means culturally. It's just like, okay, we're going to make the Colbys black and Crystal's family Hispanic and the the Carringtons are still going to be white and people will watch because it's multi-ethnic and there's a little bit more to ethnicity and culture than just, it's kind of like when in the old days of Barbie, before Barbie realized we should create Barbies that, you know, look and feel like black women too. And they just, you know, painted over the white Barbie. Um, and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know here, here's a black action figure. Here's a black Barbie. And you could tell, like, if you scraped enough, you could scrape the black off. You know, that's kind of what the broadcast networks are doing with a lot of these um, shows. And we're seeing a lot of that at the multiplexes. Now, your okay. streaming platforms are doing a lot of good You know what I would love to see? I would love to see a Game of Thrones-type show about the Kush warriors from Africa. You know, there are so many stories about ruling African, you know, historical dynasties that, you know, but George R.R. R. Martin, of course, was inspired by British and 
European history, I would love to see a writer, and it wouldn't be me because I'm not that much of a history buff. I would get bored, but I would watch the heck out of it. You know, um, I just think we have to just really delve into our own stories more and and tell those stories as opposed okay. to, oh, let's get a black James Bond and let's be mad because the white folks don't want it to be black. I don't care. I'm like, who cares? Y'all can, y'all can keep James Bond. How about that? Well, before we dive into TV, Jay Bernard, um, how do you deal with the outrage when you see it? Do you ever feel like it reflects on you or do you? Uh, well, I don't ever feel it reflects on me personally, but I agree with Mel that it should be called out. And in fact, as anybody who has ever seen a, a occasional Twitter outburst by me or follows my Facebook page knows I will drag an asshole through uh, razor blades and burnt barbed wire um, if they get on my wrong side. <laughs> and that is, um, that is, you know, probably, you know, how I approach it because a lot of, a lot of, you know, the racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia that comes through is really a reflection. Of, it's really the epitome of, of, of the fragility of, of geekdom that still sees itself as primarily white male. Mm. That is, that's just the way it is because comic books from their inception have, you know, basically they've reflected, you know, the dreams of the creators and, and how readers see themselves, Superman in particular, my hero, you know, on the, on the not great side of things, really is an expression of the uberman of you know the epitome of of white male superiority um plenty has been written about that he's a jesus figure jesus was a was a brown man from the middle east if you believe in jesus or jesus christ but he's cast as white so you see all of the threads which many other people have spoken about this have talked through that comes out when geekdom which still sees itself as white male um, uh, feels it's being erased. Mel put that put that more perfectly and more succinctly than, than I could. And just for, just for one other quick thing, more as a footnote, where I'm going to get sort of geeky for a second. I think one part of the problem of of all of this, particularly when you're dealing with um, established characters or characters and characters that the general audience might not be familiar with, is that the audience isn't isn't quote educated unquote as to what they're seeing um for example both marvel and dc that dc in particular has this thing called the multiverse yep Mm -hmm. and in the multiverse um to to vastly oversimplify and overcomplicated concept is how it's presented the multiverse is basically um, string theory on steroids. It's every there are multiple universes and there are every variations of Earth in the multiverse, um, and and some of them are really wild and some of them are very very close to 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 what we have. So um, when you have Supergirl on the CW taking place on Earth 38. And the other three Flash and the other shows in the Arrowverse taking place in the Earth One universe, CW viewers get that. They know what they they know what they're seeing. But what the general audience doesn't know is that 
Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice takes <laughs> place in an entirely different universe than what we see on the CW. So the CW Superman that appears on Supergirl isn't the same Superman that appears in the Batman v Superman universe, but they exist simultaneously. Now that seems that that's a very geeky conversation to have, but if the but if the audience understand, understood that's what was going on, they would probably have less of a reaction when they saw the black Superman that, that exists in the DC universe or the other shades or ethnicities or genders of other superheroes that they are, that they are seeing. Because what the audience is presented with, or at least what their understanding is, this is the canonical version. You're seeing what the real Superman ought to be. You're seeing what the real Flash ought to be. You're seeing what the real Wonder Woman ought to be. And um, then they're like, oh, no, it's not supposed to look like that. And why aren't they white? And why aren't they blonde? Why don't they have the green costume? Why don't they do that? And so that's where I think that a little bit of this could be alleviated. But overall, I think that you still have to call them out because they're not reacting out of any kind of purity what their idea of purity of what these characters look like, they're, they're actually acting out of their own biases and prejudices. So I call them out on it. You know, uh, sometimes I just do the eye roll, but I call them out whether it's them getting mad about the idea of a black James Bond or, or, or the incredible sexism that came up in Gamergate um, and so on and so forth. And people who, who are familiar with Gamergate, if you don't know what it is, just Google it. You'll find tons of information. So call it out, call it out, call it out. Let's talk a little bit about TV. Demand for Luke Cage crashed Netflix servers. I tried logging in that night, and it would not load. Uh, the Walking Dead's Michonne is one of the most popular and badass characters. Jada Pinkett Smith is Fish Mooney, an awesome villain on Gotham who was in the first season, gone, and then she came back. Riverdale cast um, an all-black Josie and the Pussycats, what I consider flawlessly. And as it was mentioned earlier, Black Lightning is, an ad is being adapted for the CW. Mo, what do you think are the best depictions of black characters in current or past television? Going back, I'll start with the past. I'll bring up uh, Avery Brooks as Commander slash Captain um, Benjamin Sisko. Um, I'm not going to delve back into the reasons why. Um, I would also like to say uh, Worf from Star Trek The Next Generation, Michael Dorn. Worf was just this badass Klingon. I mean, if we remember seeing Klingons before, I mean, they weren't white, but, you know, here, here's this badass black alien Klingon. Um, and in terms of ca current characters on uh, television, I'd like to... Uh, uh, Jesse Martin, who plays Joe West on The Flash, I think he's a great. He doesn't have any superpowers, but his superpower truly is how he how he feels about his family and he, how he cares and loves those people around him. And and you know he's he's this he's this African American who's a great father figure. He's a good cop. You know he's he's literally he's raising this white kid. He he took this white kid into his home, and it kind of flips that old dynamic of. Well, you know, the white per the white family is saving this this black this black kid. It the sh the Flash just totally flips that dynamic, and I love it because you know he it, Joe West is just such a strong a strong figure, and and, and not only as a, a parent, but um, 
he's just all around great great character and another current black character i really like and luke will know who i'm referring to when i when i um, mention this person is um dutch from killjoys yes she's by, a great character yeah by uh hannah john uh canaan she's of um she's multi-ethnic um you know her, her father's from um nigeria you know here, here you know we, if we want like a badass african well she's not african but a badass black female character on television watch sci-fi's killjoys during the summer i mean she just just the, the the amount of gravitas that that character has in every scene that she's in she just totally sucks you in and they, she could be talking some they could be saying some not utter nonsense on that show but you know you just want to watch dutch just kick some ass mel um the actor uh, Malcolm Bar- Barrett, who plays Rufus Carlin, is probably one of my favorite African-American actors and characters currently on television on Timeless. As anybody who listened to the year-end podcast know, he was my runner-up for Actor of the Year. Who are your best depictions? Um, if you want to go back to the past, I was going to say Worf as well. I'm not the biggest Star Trek fan, but I always like to watch him, and he was always my dad fa- dad's favorite, so I thought that was really great. Um, to go back to my childhood, Susie Carmichael from the Rugrats, she mm. was pretty fantastic. You know, she was a little black girl, but she was the only one who did not take Angelica's crap, okay? And she was <laughs> the only one I would say that always win over Angelica because she was like, look, little girl, I don't have time for this. You are crazy, and this is the way it's going to be done. So I always thought she was fantastic. Um, and good good job bringing up uh, Rufus from um, Timeless. I was going to say he's a great depiction as well because I feel like he says a lot of things that don't, that are normally not said. You know, I will never, ever forget when they were going back in time for the umpteenth time. And he was like, you do realize I'm black, right? You do realize there's not a time frame I can go back into that it is going to be OK. So let's just do this while I'm already here for it. OK. And I always that always just kind of stuck with me that he was just like, look, I'm going to keep it real with y'all. It's not going to be good for me, but we're going to work it out. OK. So that's probably uh, one of my most recent ones. Uh, we always a lot of people talk about Michonne. Um, from The Walking Dead. She's she's this samurai sword goddess, and I still want to know how she learned how to be so good with this samurai sword, but I think she's such a great depiction. You know, she's really strong, but she's also vulnerable at the same time, and I, I, I can connect with that. I think that's pretty fantastic. Jay Bernard, who are your um, best black characters depicted in geek television? I want to keep mine as short as possible. Uh, we've already... Um talked about um uh benjamin cisco um and i was going to expound but i'm not uh luke cage and uh and actually almost the entire luke cage universe uh, um which began with jessica jones but on on netflix but uh luke cage um i think is, is, is terrific speaking of terrific um mr terrific on arrow currently um it's a relatively small role but um, it, it continues to grow, and um, it, it continues to have shading. Um, in fact, uh, this past episode when Arrow did um, their first sort of straight-up political issue episode on gun violence, um, Mr. Terrific um, also made mention of the fact that he's a black man who also happens to be gay, but he's a black man who... Um, Mission, you know, as a black man, I'm I'm three times as more likely to be killed 
as as by a gun than than other people, and they didn't have to put that line in there, but they but they did, um, and they didn't shy they didn't shy away from it. And, and he's a super genius, um, and he's still learning the ropes. But I really like what they're doing with Mr. Terrific as work in progress. And um, to, to pause for a second on that, uh-huh. they say he doesn't have any superpowers, but I'm convinced he does because in one scene he has an afro and the next moment he has cornrows and it's like five minutes later and I don't know how he does his hair that fast. So he does have a superpower. Uh-huh, that ain't a superpower. <laughs> That's Shantika on her grandmama's porch. <laughs> No, what I'm saying is literally literally in continuity on this show, he will go from (laughs) let's suit up and have an afro to him on the street suited up and he goes from afro to cornrows. Up real quick and sat on her porch and she took out her her, um, long handle comb with the pick Mm -hmm. and she she Uh did did work. That's just that's called black magic. Black magic. That's it. Yeah, black girl magic, and 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 I don't look at it any different than Supergirl always having her costume under her outfit, no matter what it is. Clark Kent too, yeah, you know. Right, but but those people have superhero superhero abilities. I'm just saying, but I I I I understand. I understand. My my last one um, is Joss Carter from Person of Interest on CBS, Um, which and Joss was played by Taraji T Henson. She was amazing. Before she went on to play Cookie on Empire, yes, she was. Before she went on to play Cookie on Empire, <laughs> and and Hidden Figures, Joss was sort of, and 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 uh, uh, Mo, you'll get this. To me, Joss was sort of like the female Benjamin Cisco. She yes. was, uh, she was a yes. police detective. She was an ex-military intelligence officer. <laughs> she was a badass who came in with guns blazing, not just at the last minute, but often to save the day. And mm-hmm. she was complex, and she had her own. She had her own moral code, and she did things as, as a as a um, equal member of what of what we used to call Team Machine, which was the 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 group of of, of resistance fighters, if you will, against a far-reaching national, which turned into an international uh, conspiracy uh, that involved uh, the, the surveillance state. Um, but Joss was just that she was one of those aha characters to me that, that I had not seen in a long, long time and who, that I hadn't seen in a, that I hadn't seen to be honest and really loved her and what Taraji brought to that role. And if anybody could even just watch person of interest, you know, on demand or, or however it's presented it's on Netflix. Um, on Netflix, it would it, it's just a, a great show that gets consistently overlooked. And I have one more just very small um, uh, 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 honorable mention. Uh, I might have the name wrong, but on Alias, um, I want to call it Marcy. That's not right. Um, who is played by? Um, oh God, she was the black chick who was the um, who turned out to be a, a, a spy. Anna ah, Espinosa? No, 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 no. She was um, Sydney's best friend. Oh, Francie. Francie. I forget. Because, uh, I, it, it had just come to me as I was talking. But Francie, I love because she was a villain. And she was, she turned out to be a villain, but she turned out to be, spoiler alert, but she turned out to be a villain. And she was so awesome in that, and, and the show wasn't afraid to depict her as such. 
because as much as we see the bad guy trope with black people, at some point, at some point, you know, we can't just be the heroes. We can also be the villains as long as there's some balance going on in the narrative and the storytelling. And I think Luke Cage did that brilliantly. Yes. Yes. Uh, Jamie, who are your best depictions of black geek characters? Well, I would say, and this is a genre show. I don't know if it, it truly fits into geekdom, but I think it definitely fits in the same world as um, your Walking Dead. And so that would be Lafayette Reynolds from True Blood. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, I definitely. love the fact that Lafayette was, you know, unapologetically gay and unapologetically badass. I mean, uh, one moment, I think in the first season, when they showed some redneck guys making some gay jokes and he basically whooped ass. That was like the first moment where I'm like, whoa, the dude with makeup on just made them bow down. And throughout the entire run of the show, as he, you know, ended up getting his own witchcraft powers and became a medium and kind of became more essential to the narrative, he always just held it down. I also got to give a shout out to Grey Worm, the only real black um, continuing person on Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. He has Khaleesi's back. She could not ride those dragons to great success without the captain of her unsullied there to have her back like he always does. So. Shout out to Grey Worm. I wish he had his worm still because I know he wants to penetrate that cute young lady with the cute little fro. But, you know, they can just hunch and grind and kiss because it is what it is. Mel, Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about a show because, and we've touched on this on other podcasts, whether that's Pop Confidential or Geek Confidential, but a controversy exploded when Sleepy Hollow killed off Nicole Bahari's character abby mills um she was one of the few black leads for a network genre show for me it was unthinkable that they would do that to that character did you keep watching or did you just abandon it so i was already behind on episodes because the show was already losing me when that happened so when that happened i was like oh perfect i don't have to watch this anymore i'm not catching up because i don't care because they chose to kill her off i've I have so many thoughts about this, but go, uh, Nicole, go ahead. Nicole Bihari, who, by the way, is a Juilliard trained actress. Let's just throw that out there. Did not get the respect that she deserved on that show. Point blank, period. They didn't even want to include her in the um, in the DVD specials for this the season at all. Like, she had to make a big stink about it on Twitter for people to be like, why is she not included and she's the lead actress on this show? It didn't make any sense. And especially with that show is that in the first season, the the thing that hooked people is that, you know, you have these two characters, they have this great chemistry, and they are battling to save the world from the apocalypse. You know, and it was stories about them, and it was historical stories, and, you know, um, sci-fi and drama, it's all about them. You know, they are the, not the saviors, that's a different show. Um, They were, you know, the two chosen ones, basically, and they have to figure out how to do it to save the world. And it really worked well in in the first season, but in the second season, they changed that 
You know, they wanted to make it more about his ex-wife, Katrina, and how, you know, she's the one that's going to foil everything. And let's follow her story more. And let's take the focus off of Abby Mills and her character. And that really, I had a hard time connecting with the show more in the second season, which is why I was so behind on episodes. But then to learn about everything that was going on behind the scenes and basically, you know, just the lack of respect for Nicole. And I'm just like... She's your lead here. Why why are you not including her? Why does she have to fight to be on in the behind the scenes for the DVDs? Why does she have to fight so much for her character? And she's supposed to be the lead actress. I was completely done with that show. And apparently everyone else is too, because I saw the ratings and they're disgusting. But that's what you get. You know, don't disrespect your original fan base. Don't disrespect what drive people to the show like that, you know? And the fact that they just killed her off and was, didn't think twice about it, ugh, that whole situation makes me angry, so. I thought that you might, um, but I was curious, because I haven't tuned in since, and I was wondering if I was alone in that. Jay Bernard, I get a lot of crap from Jamie and Mel about my sci-fi loving ways, but when it really comes down to it, I tend to prefer fantasy and magic over actual sci-fi. But one of the things that I found in watching geek television is that you don't see a lot of black leads or, or major secondary characters in those types of shows. Am I like wrong in this observation? And if not, do you think there's a way that this can be improved or is it just the fact that there's so few fantasy shows as it is? Um, no, you aren't wrong, but a lot of times, you know, as in, as with all fiction, you know, writers and creators are doing two things, particularly in the fantasy realm, I believe. I mean, first and understandably, they're writing from their own experiences and they often don't think to include black or Asian or Arab or other characters, mainly because I think they don't think in terms of their characters as having the same kinds of races that we do. I mean, they're orcs and hobbits and muggles and gelflings and whatnot, you know? And um, so they're not thinking, I don't think they're, they're, they're consciously thinking in terms of black, white, Arab, Latino, etc. Um, but, you know, the other reason is, I think, is that a lot of fantasy writers think that if they include a black character, then they have to think that they have to write that character a certain way. And then they, they sort of shy away from it because, you know, they open themselves up for criticism, which may be legitimate and some of it might not, might be legit, might be um, uh, uh, illegitimate. But, but they, they just don't want to go that route. And I think the third thing that sort of comes to mind when I read, when I, when I read, when I read your question, hearing your question, is that a lot of times you're not seeing stuff optioned by, by Black and Latino and Asian and other voices of color. Sci-fi and fantasy fans for the longest time have been looking for something from Octavia Butler to be developed and brought to screen um, uh, or Samuel R. Delaney uh, to be brought to screen. And those things just don't make it, you know, to the screen where you can see, uh, you know, see these other voices, see these other characters. So what, wind, what, so what you wind up with is, are the orcs and the hobbits from, you know, the Lord of the Rings saga, but not in any, 
and, and often in a way that perhaps, you know, it was originally written and intended, but not where it sort of addresses any of the issues that you brought up. So I think how it can be improved is literally for the studios, whether that's film studios, TV, streaming services, whatever, to option, option and produce these works that are already out there by, by people of color as well as women. Um, the Handmaid's Tale can't be the only thing that's coming out. Um, as well as, um, uh, you know, people of other sexual orientations um, or, or genders in the sci-fi and fantasy realm for actually to see these, you know, to see these representations, you know, come to light. Mo, um, when I was trying to rack my brain about Black depictions in fantasy, the closest I could come to was the Shannara Chronicles on MTV, which... While it's not a great show, I really enjoy it because it's a fun show and it gives me definitely a Lord of the Rings small screen vibe that if um, Game of Thrones actually had a lot of magic in it would be amazing. But one of the things when I in the first season that really made me pause was the fact that they have these elves, which based on Tolkien mythologies are almost always white, either long white blonde hair, brown hair, black hair, but always white. And on the Shannara Chronicles, what they did is they made it so that elves were just the same as humans. There's black elves, Asian elves, white elves. They did it all the same. And so on that show, we had Commander Tilton, who was in, ten, I mean, it was an 11 episode season. She was a love interest. She was the commander, but also the love interest for one of the princes. And she made it 10 out of 11 episodes. But that, for me, was the only thing that I could, th the only character that I could think of that was actually a depiction of a black person in fantasy television and uh, in a, in a major, semi-major role. What are your thoughts on that, on, on black people in fantasy? To be honest, I can't really think of any in terms of, in terms of contemporary shows. I, I think that, it's it's one of these things that it's a behind it's an issue that we can that needs to be dealt with behind the scenes. So um, I think as you have more diversity in terms of producers and writers and directors, I think people will be more cognizant of this issue. I think the other thing that'll help change this, and it's not going to be overnight, but let's say. 10, 15, 20 years down the line is what Jamie and, and some of the others have been saying about like, you know, people of color just creating their own things. I mentor kids who are who they they grew up with um, geek TV and, and and fantasy and they're creating like they're writing or they're drawing and making their own fantasy characters. And if we can encourage people, young people to continue this process and to kind of get their ideas out there, I think down the line, this, it, this won't be a thing anymore. Uh, well, finally, as we wrap this up, one of my favorite daytime confidential episodes was a top five episode where we all made confessions about the, the craziest thing we'd done because of our love for soaps. And I'm pretty sure Jamie topped that though I vaguely remember something about someone hiding in a bag. I don't know who that was. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to see if, 
any of you had any confessions for things that you had done for your geekdom out of your passion or love for your geekdom. Uh, Mo, before the podcast, you had said that you had something um, to share. So as a kid, as I mentioned before, that I got an allowance from my mother. It wasn't a whole lot of money in order to buy my comics. So in the when I was younger, one of the things that I did with a, with a friend of mine is, is that we got what is known as a price guide. So the price guide tells you how much comics are worth. So my friend and I, we would go around to different comic shops and to the spindle racks, because at, at this point, I'm talking like in the 90s, comics used to be on spindle racks. We would use the price guide. We would find comics that were hot or were considered valuable. Then we would take it to a comic shop in town that we knew was constantly buying comics. So we would often just get things and for um, – we would just take in a bunch of comics that we know were hot. Maybe it was a comic we found we paid three bucks for, four bucks, five bucks. We would then catch the bus, take it across town, and sell it for three times that amount. Um, and that's how we kind of like it, um, increase the amount of money that uh, that we were able to spend on comics. Now, when Superman died, um, the death of Simon, uh, Jay Bernard, you probably remember the death of Superman, the black bags. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah you know the black. Okay. All right. So when yeah. the death of Superman occurred, okay, um, back in 92, there was a blizzard that hit us on in, in Virginia. And so. I was out of school, we were out of school, better part of a week. So we were bored. My friend and I, we would meet up. We would go out, and it was snowing and stuff. We would go to stores. We would we would go into these supermarkets, and we were finding these comics, these Death of Superman issues that would lead up to, or issues leading up to Death of Superman. The issues that uh, brought in Doomsday, the villain, that, the character that they, uh, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman fought. Um, in and Batman, Superman, you know, Dawn of, you know, crap, crap. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we would sell the we would we made sets of these comics and we would just selling them left and right and and yeah, that's probably the, one of the craziest things I did is run around town in a blizzard making comic sets to sell for money. So you could have froze to death, but your love for comics actually survived made you made you survive. Yeah, but if we'll you, go that far. Yeah, but if I froze to death, see what would have happened is my mother would have then made sure that I was resuscitated. Then she probably would have whipped me. Okay. And you know, so either either way, I was either gonna freeze to death or or I was gonna get a whipping. So you know, uh, Mel. Sometimes Jamie will give me side eyes about uh, my love for geek stuff, but and when I went to my first Comic Con and I was putting, we're we gonna do up. a drinking game about how many yes. times you say that. Yeah, yes, we are. Look um, at this me. is my I'm podcast. When I went to my first Comic Con, I put all these photos up of people who were doing cosplay. And while that's something in my mind <laughs> that I have thought about doing, as yet I have not got the guts to do it. Has there been anything crazy that you've ever done out of your love for geek? Um, I, I remember being little with my dad and we used to tie towels around our necks, pretend to be Superman. Um, and that was fun. And I will never forget the look on my mother's face when she walked in. We're running around like 
chicks with a head cut off with towels tied around our necks. She just goes, I'm not going to ask. And we just walks away. That was always fun. But um, anything and there's no there's no restraining orders for Jeffrey Dean Morgan on The Walking Dead? I mean, not as of yet. Okay. There's a lot of time left. <laughs> um, and I know I'm always I like to go to midnight showings when I know I have to be to work the next day at you know seven a.m. and I'm at the midnight showing. But other than that, no, I know I can't. No, no, no. And you get home at like one thirty in the morning yeah, and two o'clock. But it doesn't matter because I got to see my you know Harry Potter. No, um, no. No, I'm sorry. Not Transformers. Uh, like, okay, I, Transformers, X-Men, always. Um, Suicide Squad, I went to the midnight show for that and was sleepy the next you day. You regretted it? was mad <laughs> and sleepy the next day at work for that. Um, anything else I can't... Not that I can think of. Sorry. Jay Bernard, anything crazy you've done? Well, <laughs> the only thing that really comes to mind is, is that I had a a run-in with the actor Craig Pierico a number of years ago. Um, he's currently uh, Chet on Unreal, if anybody watches that show. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's a well-known character actor. He's been on Damages and Boston Legal, and he's also an accomplished Broadway star. And um, this was around 2001 or so, and he was in The Music Man on Broadway when I was still living in New York. And he was also on Sex in the City at the same time. So he's walking down 8th Avenue toward 42nd Street, and it's cold and it's raining and everybody's bundled up. And I look at him and I'm like, that's Craig Bierko. Because, see, I'm that person who recognizes people like that by name. And so I said, I said are you Craig Bierko? And he stopped and he's really startled. And I did the whole thing. I'm a longtime fan, and I shook his hand. And then I said, the 13th floor should have been a really big hit, and you were great in it. And he looked at me, and he was—he looked like he wanted to punch me in the throat. And I didn't realize that I was, like, rubbing salt in the wound because The 13th Floor was a movie that was very much like The Matrix that came uh-huh. out, like, a couple of months right after The Matrix. And it was a huge disaster at the box office. <laughs> so I was like, oh, my God, I've embarrassed this man in public on a crowded street. And so to Craig Bierko, if you are listening, and if you don't remember, and if I brought up bad memories, please forgive me. You've just I'm brought sorry. them up again? <laughs> yes. That was about the worst geeky thing, geek out moment I've had, bringing up a sci-fi movie that was a huge flop to the star. Jamie, you were a fan of Sarah Michelle Gellar on All My Children, and you loved Buffy. Did you ever do anything? Like, did you ever go, like, vampire killer on someone's ass? No, I can't say that I did. Now, sure, when I was a kid, like everyone else, like I have those stories like Mel had. I, um, Yeah, I, as a little kid, I pretended to be the superheroes that I watched on TV or, or things of that nature. But I can't say that I did anything that stands out in my memory as you know like i have the stories about soaps obviously where i would pretend to have stomach flus to go home and and watch um, but i you know no i didn't really there wasn't any of those um moments with geek tv or geek movies i will say that i have a fond memory attached to 
um, what a lot of people consider the worst Superman movie. So my credit union back home in Texas had a little kid club, savings club, and I saved the most money, so I won this trip to the movies. And um, my grandfather, who you know I've talked about on the Daytime Confidential podcast, was the grumpiest of grumpy old men. My aunts and uncles... Um, all joke about how he never attended their sporting events or their their little childhood, you know, award ceremonies or ribbon ceremonies. So he would do those things for me, although grudgingly. And, you know, but it still just floored my mother and my aunts and uncles because they were just like, this man went to a vacation Bible school to watch you get an award willingly. But, but, you know, I, everyone joked that I had him wrapped around my finger, and I did. You know, he was my daddy. So when I won this award, my grandmother had to work, and so she couldn't take me to the movie. And it was to see the Superman where they create a nuclear version of Superman uh, quest for peace. Superman 5. Yeah, so it was the worst of the Superman movies. But it's the one I won the award to go. And so my grandfather didn't want to take me. because No, he, it was Superman 4, Quest for Peace. Yeah, so he didn't want to go. And my grandma, you know, I had to go that day. And, you know, because the, the ticket was only good for that Saturday. And my grandmother had to work. And so he didn't. And he's like, I don't want to go down here to that movie. And I just had one of my patented hissy fits it was like hi what it's my day and i'm all falling all out so he's like fine fine and so he took me to watch that shittiest superman movie so in a lot of ways that's my favorite superman movie because i always have warm and fuzzy thoughts of sitting there next to my grandfather who had told me, eat before you leave the house, because I'm not spending a lot of money on popcorn either. Although we did get the biggest popcorn they had when I got there. So I just nope. remember looking up at him with a frown on his face and then him laughing at a couple of points in the movie because he was not someone who ventured out of the house to go to things like movies and so, yeah, that was, I, I had a hissy fit in order to go see, you know, the quest for peace, which um, we might need that Superman here <laughs> pretty soon. That, that, that storyline about Superman bundling up all the nuclear weapons and taking them to outer space the way the world is going. So, oh, and we got to give a shout out before we close this podcast. We cannot have a black geek podcast without mentioning Lieutenant Ahura. We would be thrown off the, the internet. <laughs> so, you know, cause she did it upright for black geeks back in the day. She even got some tongue from, from Captain Kirk. So shout out to the sister in outer space. Uh, the sister in outer space. I, that is a great way to end the podcast, Jamie. Uh, where can they find you on Twitter? They can find me leading Bible study at Jamie <laughs> underscore Gibbons <laughs> all day and all night because the devil, he roams, and I am here to help save your souls. 
someone responded to your tweet about uh, not Bathsheba bathing on the roof in the moonlight. No wonder David sinned in response to your tweet about well, you see, talking I, they'll about have Jezebel. To, they'll have to listen to see that I also mentioned Bathsheba. <laughs> um, Mel, where can they find you? You can find me at my name, uh, at Melody Akles, M-E-L-O-D-I-E-A-I-K-E-L-S. And Jay Bernard, where can they find you if they want to be dragged? Well, he said he'll drag people across on Twitter, so I was like, okay, let's go with it. Oh, let's go with it. You can find me at J. Bernard Jones on both Twitter and on Facebook 24 hours a day, it seems. Okay. Mo, where can they find you? I'm at Dr. Mo77 on Twitter. As always, you can find me at Luke underscore Kerr. Follow the podcast on Twitter, twitter.com slash gkconfidential. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gkconfidential. We thank you for listening. Until next time, so long. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye.